You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. So good afternoon and welcome to today's class on Monday where we have, we talk about the Torah reading of the week and we are now up to the 20th Torah reading in the book of, of the, from the beginning of the Torah, the 6th Torah reading of the book of Exodus. And we continue to learn about the building of the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle and the instructions that God gives Moses to the Jewish people about the building of the tabernacle. And this week discusses at length not only the building but also the garments that the high priests were and the detail of the work that was done in the tabernacle. With everything that's going on in the world, the bottom line is that most of us, I should say, go to sleep at night, live a normal life, go to regular weddings, go to restaurants, do what we need to do in the malls, and whatever has to be done. And meanwhile, unfortunately, it's over 100 days already that over 134 Jews are held captive by the enemy of the Jewish people, people who are savages and couldn't care less to do what they wished and how they do to our own brothers and sisters. And the question that we sometimes need to ask ourselves is, how is it that we can just live our normal lives, go on with our day-to-day activities, while in the Holy Land the greatest catastrophe of our time is happening with such terrible things going on? In 50 years from now, your children will ask you, or in 10 years from now, or in 5 years from now, and your children will ask, what did we do to be able to save, to help these people in captivity? And we'll say, well, we went on with our life, and everything was good, and everything walked on. And well, you have many legitimate answers. You can say, well, what do you want me to do? I'm not a politician. I'm not a statesman. I'm not a man of influence. I'm not a person who has the money to be able to buy them out, or to whatever it may be. So, Mr. Kraft paid $7 million for an ad in the Super Bowl to fight anti-Semitism. He did his part, but I don't have those $7 million. So what, are you, what am I supposed to do? But from a Jewish perspective, we know it's not about the dollars and cents, it's not about the politics, and it's not about the money, it's not about the influence, it's about our prayers. It's about our good deeds. And anything we do in the spiritual atmosphere, whether it's taking upon a mitzvah or saying extra tehillim, that has a direct impact, not only as much, but even more, than all the influence of the politicians and everything else. If you looked just recently, last week, a massive miracle when the Jewish people were able to celebrate the release of captivity of these two special people from Israel, to Fernando Herman and Louis Har, who were in captivity in Khan Yunis, and the Israeli soldiers were able to, cap- to release them from captivity. But I don't know if you're aware of that the story before that incident, that a week before, um, this uh, daughter of Louise Har was actually in New York and in Florida, and she went to the Rebbe's Ohel, and she prayed, but even more so, but she committed to lighting Shabbos candles, and her son-in-law committed to put on tefillin every single day. And that was just a week prior to their release from their captivity. So we see a direct correlation, doing mitzvahs and doing things for the release and foreign honor and the merit of these things has an automatic connection. And we have to remember that as much and as great as we maybe think influence we don't have, we actually have a greater influence than we actually do. And what we're going to talk about today is this idea 
and the secret to Jewish continuity throughout the generations, notwithstanding the atrocities and the difficulties that we've gone through, there was one thing that Jewish people knew wherever they are in the world, that a Jew is never alone. No Jew is ever alone. Every single Jew is part of the entire entity of the Jewish people, and the entire nation of the Jewish people are there to help them spiritually, physically, materially, and emotionally in anything. And we look today, how many Jewish people, the amount of money over a billion dollars was donated to Israel just since October 7th, people doing mitzvahs around the world, everybody being inspired and awakened to do their part to be able to help and change the conversation. And this is our obligation as well as we're going to discuss today, especially when there are people held in captivity, as Maimonides codifies it in Jewish law, that every single person needs to do what they can to be able to release them from captivity. And in our job, in us today, our job would be praying, doing acts of kindness, and more mitzvahs in their honor. We're going to be able to understand this by asking one of the most famous questions about this week's Torah reading. And what that is, that if any person was to make even a vague reading of this week's Torah reading, you will notice something outstanding, something which probably stands in the face. A question that has been asked for centuries, and we're going to try to answer it with its contemporary application by looking at the different commentators who give their answers of why. The question is, why is Moshe's name not mentioned in this week's Torah reading? That if you were to look at every Torah reading from Moshe's birth, I mean, it's not in the book of Genesis because Moshe wasn't born yet, not in the book of Deuteronomy, because Moshe is the one saying it, but the means the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Moshe's name is mentioned over 600 times. In every single Torah reading, almost practically every other verse, you'll find Moshe's name. In this week's Torah reading, nowhere is there a mention of Moshe's name. Not in the beginning, not in the end, not in the middle, you will not find Moshe's name. We know this, and we're going to get through the different explanations of why and how, and what's going on over here, and from it we will learn the obligation to be there for another Jew. So let's look into this week's Torah reading. As we mentioned, this week's Torah reading tells us about the construction of the tabernacle. Last week we learned, as Moshe tell, God tells Moshe, about the actual vessels that were built, the walls, the curtains, the covering, and all the different details of the building of the tabernacle. This week it moves over to a step later, which now the first part of the Torah reading tells us about the oil that was used in the Torah reading, and then it tells us about the garments that the Kohen Gadol wear, special eight garments that he wore only in the Holy Temple, what it was made from, the special breastplates with the stones, what was carved in them, and as well as the garments that was used by Aaron's sons and eventually the Kohanim of every generation. And as we read through the Torah reading, while in last week's Torah reading it tells us about the vessels, this and Moshe's name is mentioned, a classic way how Moshe's name is mentioned, and God tells Moses, saying, and then Moshe tells the Jewish people. In this week's Torah reading, as we heard, there's zero mention of Moshe's name. And you would think, if Moshe was the architect of the entire building of the tabernacle, the one that was going to be in charge, the manager of the construction of it, the building of the clothes, and the making of the clothes, his name would be mentioned someplace, somewhat about it. But Moshe's name is not mentioned, not by any word about it, not by any commandment, not by any mitzvah. There's zero mention of his name. In the beginning of this week's Torah reading, it starts off, the first word of the Torah reading is, and you, Moshe, command the Jewish people to bring oil. It doesn't say the word Moshe, it just says, and you. And you will command the Jewish people that they should bring oil to light the menorah and for the anointing oil. 
Interestingly, if you look the exact same commandment giving to Moshe in the book of Leviticus, similar idea, God starts off, God said to Moshe saying, speak to the Jewish people that they should bring oil. Over here it doesn't say that. It starts off, and you bring oil, tell the Jewish people. Who is you? Speaks to saying, the usual way of saying it is not mentioned. And as we mentioned, this is a question that has been asked for centuries and all different types of commentators gives ex- give some explanations for it. We're going to mention three of them, starting from the ones least known to the ones that are more, a little more popular. And we'll start with the first one from a very great individual, a Jew that was killed in Spain for the sake of God for being a Jew, by the name of Shloima Anstruck, and he says the following. He says, you know, who initially was supposed to be the Kohen? Moshe. Only because Moshe refused to go take the Jewish people out of Egypt. And he said, let Aaron be the one to speak. He's older than me. God said, okay, you want Aaron to go? Aaron will be your spokesman, but you now lost the opportunity to be the Kohen Gadol. Over here, the Torah is telling us something very unique about Moshe. That while Moshe was the one to command and the one that got the instructions from God about the building of the temple, he could have put his name right front and center about it. But what did he do in his great humility? He wanted to give all the attention to Aaron. Because this week's Torah reading talks about the garments that Aaron would wear, Moshe wanted to remove himself in all of his humility from it, that all the attention should be given to Aaron. Even though you might say maybe he has bad feelings, but that Aaron got it, he was happy that his brother was the one to be able to receive this honor of being the high priest, and he completely dedicated himself without even mentioning his name, so to speak, to show that I have no gripes about it, and I'm more than happy that my brother and his sons are the ones to be able to be the Kohen Gadol. And being that this Torah reading talks all about the preparation of the Kohen and the Kohen Gadol, Moshe removes himself from it, saying, the honor is all theirs. This also helps us understand a very fascinating verse in Psalms, in Psalm 129, I think it is. No, uh, Psalm 139, 134, I'm sorry. Psalm 134, where the verse in Tehillim says something very interesting. It says, How pleasant is it that brothers can sit together and enjoy each other's camaraderie? And it says, continues, like the good oil that drips down that drips down on the beard the beard of Aaron that goes according to its attributes why does, the Torah, why does the verse say it goes down on the beard of Aaron his beard of Aaron why twice the beard what's it telling us here and over here one of the great commentators says something very fascinating what does it mean true camaraderie what does it mean people really getting along together to see brothers celebrating and enjoying each other's company? Sometimes, yeah, I can sit and enjoy each other's company, but in your mind you're saying, I wish I would have been there. I wish I would have been getting it. I'm happy for his reward, but it would have been nice if I also would have got the reward. But over here the Torah is telling us, no, no, no. Over here when Moshe saw the oil dripped down on Aaron's beard because they put the anointed oil on his forehead and they made him the Kohen Gadol. He was rejoicing as much as Aaron was rejoicing. 
His happiness in Moshe, in Aaron's having the being the one to be the Kohen Gadol, was dripping on his beard, just like it was dripping on Moshe's, on Aaron's beard. Meaning the beard, telling us he felt that enjoyment, that pleasure, that excitement, just like Aaron. That's the true meaning of enjoying and camaraderie, sitting together and celebrating with somebody else, that you're able to enjoy as much as they enjoy that they're getting it. In fact, this is a little bit of a payback that Moshe gave to Aaron. Because if you look at Moshe, when God chose him to be the one to take the Jewish people out of Egypt, God tells Moshe, take the Jewish people out of Egypt. What does Moshe respond? I'm not the one to do it. Please find somebody else. And so what does God say? Go get Aaron. He'll be your second in command. He'll be your interpreter. You have a problem with the speech impediment. Aaron will be to say the words for you. Now think about it. For a year, because that's how long all the plagues took, Aaron was the second in command of Moshe. Basically, Moshe said the words. Moshe was the figurehead. And Aaron said, yeah, that's what he said. He was like, seemingly, he was his older brother. Aaron was older. And he was giving honor and respect to his younger brother. And happy for the fact, and if you look in the words, God says, Aaron will come, he will see you, and he will rejoice. He'll be happy that you were the one chosen by God. He had no gripes about it. He was happy that Moshe was the one to be the leader of the Jewish people. And over here, Moshe returns the favor. You were happy about me when I was chosen by God. I am happy about you that you were chosen by God to be the Kohen Gadol. And for that reason, his name is not mentioned in this week's Torah reading to show his absolute joy and rejoicing in the fact that his brother was the Kohen Gadol. That's one answer. A second answer is brought by a student of the Baal Shem Tov, Nachman of Chernobyl, and he said as follows. If you look every year when we read the Torah reading of Tetzaveh, always comes in the week of 7th of Adar. 7th of Adar was last Friday, so it's close to it, but many times when it's not a leap year, it's actually the actual year. And the 7th of Adar is always in the week that Moshe's name is not, me- that Moshe's name is not mentioned. That's week Torah reading. What does Moshe's passing symbolize? He's not here. What does the Torah reading symbolize? Why is his name not mentioned? It symbolizes that Moshe's name, that Moshe passed away in that week. But it tells us even more so. What does the Torah reading begin with? Vi'ata. That you, Moshe, command the Jewish people. Over here, the Torah is teaching us the greatness of a tzaddik. A tzaddik, even after he passes away, he exists within this world, even more than while he was alive. Meaning that his influence, his passion, his teachings continue to live on. Because a tzaddik's life is not made of flesh and bones. A tzaddik is spiritual, all his actions that he did. And therefore the Torah says, In this week will you will not see Moshe's name. Meaning that Moshe passed away. You think he's gone? You know, you, the essence of Moshe is really there and continues to live on. We mentioned this a lot, uh, once before about the concept of Purim. And we, I think last week we spoke about it. So just a quick, in, it works in as well. Is when Haman made the uh, lottery of when Purim should be. So you pick the month of Adar, thinking that in the month of Adar, Moshe died, so therefore it's not a good month for the Jews. So therefore he said, it's not only Moshe died, and therefore I'm going to pick that month. What did a voice from heaven come out? Little do you know, Amen, not only was Moshe died, but he was also born in that month. What was the, what was the point of it? What do I care if Moshe was born, but the bottom line, he died? Because he didn't value, he didn't know what a tzaddik is all about. Just because a tzaddik is physically not here, 
he still continues. And that's why who was the one that saved the Jewish people? Mordechai. Because Mordechai in his generation was like Moshe of the generation. Because the Moshe of the generation continues to be the inspiration. He may not be there physically. So you thought, Haman, Moshe died, so therefore you can do what you want with the Jews? No, Moshe's influence continued to protect the Jews in every generation and continues to protect us until today. Because the Tzaddik, just because he passed many years ago, doesn't change his influence, his excitement and connection with the Jewish people. That is the second explanation that we bring about of why Moshe's name is not mentioned. But there's another third explanation, which is probably the most famous of all. And this third explanation is brought by Rabbi Yaakov, the son of Rabbeinu Usher, known as the Balaturim. He was a codifier of Jewish law. His father was the Rosh, Rabbeinu Usher, one of the first codifiers of Jewish law. He's also found in the commentaries on the Chumash. And you see a lot of times he does numeric uh, gematria, it's called, like uh, numeric different combinations to see and teach different explanations. And he says as this, he says something very interesting. He says the reason is because this is more of a mystical reason. The reason why Moshe's name is not mentioned in this week's Torah reading has to do with the words he said. Because if you look at the way God created the world, God created the world verbally by saying, let there be light and there was light. Speaking creates things. As much as we want to say, well, it was only a few words, it's only this, it's only that. Words have power. How much more so, words of a tzaddik having a greater power. To the extent, the Talmud says that there's an angel that takes all the words that we say and holds them in a special bank and if something happens, he's going to be able to bring it to prosecute against us. You know, like today with the computer, you put something, there's no erasing it. The same thing is also whatever you say, as in the words of King Solomon, even the, wor- even the birds of the heaven take your words and bring it to the other side of the world. You can never take them back. The words we say are always out there. And therefore, the words that we say, the same way God created the universe and said words to create the universe, when we say words, they have an impact. When a tzaddik says words, even more so. So let's go to the words that Moshe said. If you can recall the story of the golden calf, which we're going to read about in two weeks, in next week time, next week in the Torah reading of Kisisa, it tells us about the Jewish people made the sin of the golden calf, and because of that, God wanted to destroy the Jewish people. Moshe says, one second, God, do you want to destroy the Jewish people? I'm going to, th- here you have a proposal. Or not only a proposal, or a threat, if you want to call it. You destroy the Jewish people, wipe me out of your book. I don't want to have anything to do with it. What is he saying here? If you're going to forgive the Jewish people, he tells God, fine, we can continue working. We can have a wonderful relationship. But if you're not, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Erase me from the Torah. I don't want to be mentioned in a Torah that talks about the destruction of the Jewish people. Now because Moshe uttered the words, erase me from the Torah, God had to fulfill it to a certain extent. Which part of the Torah did he have to take it out of? He took it out of this week's Torah reading. In this week's Torah reading, you don't find Moshe's name. But what did God do? What did he start the Torah reading with? The Atah, I knew. The Torah reading that's directed most to Moshe, that's the one that he took Moshe's name out of. There are someone who explained as well, if you look at the word, Misifrecha, the word that he says, erase me from your book. Misifrecha, and then from your book, Chaf. Chaf is the number 20. Parshas Tetzav is the 20th Torah reading. Take me out of the 20th Torah reading. If you wanted to go a little deeper in the explanatory way of looking at things. 
What does God say? God acquiesces. He says, okay, Moshe, I forgive the Jewish people. And if it gives the Jewish people, that's the day of Yom Kippur, that we're forgiven for eternity, that every single year on the day of Yom Kippur, we have that day of forgiveness. Even though God forgave the Jewish people, still in all, God then had to keep a little bit of what Moshe said and took him out of this week's Torah reading. That's the well-renowned, known explanation given by the Balatur. The Rebbe's father, Rabbi Levi Yitzchik Schneerson, goes a step further from a Kabbalistic angle and looks at it from a different perspective. And he says as follows. He says, in fact, this was not a punishment that Moshe was saying. This was actually a demand that Moshe asked of God. What was Moshe saying? Moshe said, listen like this. If you're going to forgive them, great. But whether you forgive them or not, take me out of your book. What does it mean? Why was Moshe saying that? Why would Moshe tell God to erase me from your book? Because what's going on over here? What was God's plans initially? When he said, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people because of the sin of the golden calf. So there were going to be no more Jewish people. What was his plan? So if we look a little deeper into the Torah, we look and we see in next week's Torah reading that God first tells Moshe's plans. I'm going to wipe out the Jewish people and I'll rebuild them from you, Moshe. You and your family and the people that didn't serve the golden calf, that will be the future of the Jewish people. So Moshe said, one second. No, 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 that's not the way it works. The only reason why I'm alive and I'm a Moshe and I'm a leader of the Jewish people is because there is a Jewish people. If there's no Jewish people, then there's no need for Moshe. You can't have a Moshe that's going to go into the land of Israel and going to be the future of the Jewish people if there is no Jewish people. Me and the Jewish people are one. Moshe saw no place for his life without the Jewish people. He understood that there's no such thing as separating the Jewish people. All the Jewish people are one organism. They're one unit. And you can't say, I cut off this piece, but I'll save this piece. You cut off one hand, you're cutting off the whole hand of the Jewish people. We can't have that. And therefore Moshe tells God, I, my existence, I don't exist if you erase the Jewish people. Yes, it's very nice that you want to forgive them. But if there's no Jewish people, I don't exist. And what did God do over here? That means when God continued to take out Moshe's name from the Torah reading of Parshas Tetzavah, what God was actually doing over here was, He was showing the unique quality of the self-sacrifice that Moshe had. If you look at it a step further, it's something fascinating. These exact words that Moshe tells God, if not, erase me from my book, the Rebbe says, look a little closer. It's chapter 32, verse 32. Even more so. The Talmud discusses it in the Tractate of Brachos on page 32. Do you know what 32 is in Hebrew? Lamed Bet, which means heart, lave. What over here is the Torah is telling us in a very codified way that this is the heart of the Jewish people. The heart of the Jewish people is Moshe is telling you what the heart of the Jewish people, how did the Jewish people beat? How did they How are they alive in all these generations? Is because there are leaders that recognize that we're inseparable. Because Jewish people identify with one another and recognize that we are all about each other. What was Moshe? From day one, he was able to be a mature boy, walked outside, walked into Egypt and said, how are the Jewish people doing? And he looked and he saw the suffering of the Jewish people and he said, how can I help them? 
What can I do for them? His whole life was about the heart of the Jewish people. And this is where Moshe stands up and says, if they are not alive, I'm not alive. If they don't exist, I don't exist. The Jewish people are one unit. This is what the Torah is telling us. Why is Moshe's name not mentioned in Parashas Tetzaveh? Is because he was the heart of the Jewish people. And therefore when God made that, uh, that threat, so to speak, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people, Moshe says, listen here, that's your choice, but then I don't have a job. I'm, there's no purpose for me. I have no reason to exist. The whole point of the leader is because there's a nation. The whole part of the nation needs a part. Every single Jew is connected with one another. And Moshe put this in the Torah because he wanted to teach every single Jew for every generation to know that we are all part of one unit. We are all one heart beating together. And when one Jew ceases to exist, we all cease to exist. And when one Jew celebrates, we all celebrate together. One Jew is happy and same in unfortunate times. Where do we see this even closer in the Torah? And we go to the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus tells us of how we have to look at the world, not only at the world, but at every situation that we're in, to make sure to say, I'm, not, I'm fine, and therefore everybody else can just work it out on their own. Our responsibility and obligation that we have to events around us. The Torah in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 16, the Torah says, You cannot stand here while you see your brother's blood being spilled. One of the things that we have in America, while there is a wonderful Good Samaritan law, that if I happen to help somebody, then I, you can't sue me. But there's no obligation, according to United States law, that if you see a person drowning, that you have to jump in and drown them, uh, save the guy's life, even if you're a lifeguard. The only obligation is if on your license plate, I think it says EMS or something like that, then you might have an obligation to stop by a car accident, and even so, if there's already an ambulance there, you don't have to, and whatever it may be. But almost there's zero obligation for a person to stand up and do anything. You can go to sleep. You can watch a person being murdered in front of you. You don't even have to call 911. And unfortunately, time and time again, there was a famous story in the Bronx in the 1960s where a person heard a woman being murdered and never bothered to call anybody. And there's nothing. In America, everybody can just drive into their driveway, close the garage behind them, go to sleep. You don't bother me. I don't bother you. And unfortunately, this is the way we live our lives in many ways. In Israel, and according to the Torah, there's actually a law that if you see somebody that's being in a life-threatening situation, as long as your life is not in danger, instead it's a separate discussion if you have to put your life in danger to save somebody else's life, but you have an obligation to save that person, at least call 911. In Israel, I think there's even a year imprisonment if you watch the scene and you didn't do anything for it and so on. But what is it? What is the, uh, to what extent, the question is, do I have to go in saving that person's life? How much do I have to do? I got my own problems, I can say. I got to get there, I have to go, uh, I have to have an appointment, I have things to do. Well, I'm going to go stop and help every person that has a flat tire on the road. What, how do, where does it end? Where does it begin? And to what extent and to what responsibility, what do I have to do to be able to do it? And Rashi writes a certain category of how it, what person has to look at it. And Rashi says as follows. The Torah says, Do not stand while your brother's blood is spilled. And Rashi explains as follows. You see him being killed, and you are able to save him. 
What does it mean you see him being killed? What if I turn the other way, then I don't see him? What's the prohibition if I see him? In fact, it's a fascinating law in Jewish law. If let's say a rabbi in this community are taking a stroll on a brook and they see a woman drowning, and they specifically say a woman drowning, and they all know how to swim equally, who do you think is obligated to jump into the water and save the woman? The rabbi. The rabbi shouldn't tell his assistant, oh, you know, go, go, go call a lady to do it. No. Because the rabbi has to be an example and show that if this is, even on Shabbos, of saving another life, and you can save him. Save that person. Even if it's a woman, you have to jump in and save that person. Over here, what is Rashi telling us? If you see somebody else drowning, or you see somebody else in a, de- a life and death situation, and you are able to save them, you have a, the right to do it. Not only the right, the obligation to do so. You shouldn't say, yeah, I'll turn around, I never saw that, never happened, then just keep on walking. Why does Rashi have to say this? Why does Rashi say, if you see it? And the Rebbe explains this fascinating thing. Because Rashi is telling us and putting a pointer on something very important. When you see something, it's because it's for you to be seen, it's for you to say something. The very fact that God made something happen, that you should be the one to see it, means that you have the opportunity to do something about it, or else why would it come to your hands? The very fact that you see it, means that you can do something about it. Well, we have to figure out what you can do. If you can't swim, if you don't have a gun, whatever it is, call 911, do something you could do. But the bottom line is that the Rashi is telling us the very fact that God made by divine providence that you should see this event. There's something you have to learn from it. There's something that you have to do about it. This is not only something that we see just now, but if you look in every generation, the true leaders of every generation, whether it was Mordechai and Esther, Mordechai and Esther, Esther tells Mordechai, what should I do? The king didn't call me in 30 days. If I go inside, I might get killed. We're going to read the story soon on Purim. What does Mordechai tell her? Mordechai says, look, this is the reason why you're in Achashverosh's palace. What do you think there? Just to be able to have the, the service of the maidservants? No, the reason why you came to Achashverosh's palace is, even if it means to risk your life, you can now go and save the Jewish people. This is your opportunity. Yosef had the same story. Yosef is in prison. He's thinking about his own plight. He was sent away from his family. 20 years he's already away from his family. A young kid accused and framed and everything else. And all of a sudden he sees two people in prison having a troubled day because of a bad dream. He thinks to himself, why did God make me see this? He could have said, yeah, they had a bad dream. Not my problem. I didn't give them the dream. I'm in prison also. Why do I have to deal with this Meshagas? But he said, no. He said, God made this happen that I should see it. There must be I can do something about it. Let me see what I can do. And all of a sudden he was able to help them. And ultimately, that opportunity came and it was even good for him. The same idea is also in our own eyes and in our own situations. We look now what's going on in the world. It's very easy for us, you know, to turn the page of the newspaper and not watch that news or not speak about it, not think about it, and live life as it goes on. But as we mentioned in the beginning of the class, Maimonides tells us that when it comes to a person in captivity, we have an obligation to be able to help a person in captivity. To what extent do we have to help a person in captivity? 
As Maimonides says, there is no greater mitzvah like Pityon Shvumrek releasing a person from captivity. But to what extent? Well, look what Abraham did. Lot, came, um, a, a Lot was captured. Og came along and told him that your nephew Lot is captured. What did he do? He gathered his 318 people and said, I'm going to go fight the superpowers of the world. He knew he wasn't going to make it out alive, according to natural means. He also understood that Og came there and told him about it because Og wanted Sarah. But he saw that there was a Jew in captivity. He says, I'm going to go and do something about it or else why did I get the message? Abraham didn't go, he was a very rich man. He didn't go try to bribe them. He said, no, I'm going to put my muscle to it. I'm going to fight and I'm going to get him out. You may ask, what gave him the right to put his life in danger? Well, Abraham was a person who understood the opportunity of recognizing and recognizing that this was for the sanctity of God's name. This wasn't just, oh, taking Lot, but they were taking Lot because they wanted to show a rebel against God. And therefore, Moshe, uh, Abraham did this because he was said, when I redeem Lot, if I bring him out of captivity, if I bring him back home, this will be the greatest sanctification of God's name. And he was right. Because when he did bring him back, what did they, did they say? Wow. And he refused to take a reward from them. They said, this must be a great God. And that only made him more popular. And he was able to sanctify God's name because of it. Why did Abraham do it? Because it was premeditated. He had an idea. He had a plan. He had a heart. And when you have a heart, you feel for another person. Moshe had a heart, felt for the Jewish people. Mordechai had a heart. Esther had a heart. Yosef, when we have a heart, we recognize and we feel like that we can do something that we are obligated to do. And we feel an obligation and a connection to it. It's so important. And we see this even more so. And again, in every time, in every generation, we have the obligation that we tell us that we should be there to release the captives. We have an obligation to release those hostages. How do we do it, you may ask? How does one go about it? What are the obligations, the legalities of it? The mission in the tractate of Gittin says, one shouldn't pay more than their value. Should we release all the Palestinian terrorists to be able to get those captives? We don't see Abraham did that. We don't see he bought them off. And in fact, the Talmud says we don't give more than the value. And the Talmud gives two interesting reasons why you don't pay more than the value of a captive. Because it was a very common thing that they would come and they would sell captives as slaves. And when it comes to a Jewish captive, they knew they would get more money. So the Talmud says, if we're going to keep on paying a higher price for captives, they're going to keep on taking more Jewish captives. And it becomes a vicious cycle. Another reason why the Talmud says it is because we're, ultimately it's going to become too big of a tax on the Jewish people and we're not going to be able to afford it. So the Talmud says if we are technically we should pay what we can. The only reason why we don't is because A, it becomes too much of a tax on the Jewish people. B, it's going to entice them to take more captives. There's a very famous story of the heroism of the Marama Rutenberg. He was a mayor of Rutenberg. He was a very great scholar, one of the great first uh, teachers of the Ashkenazic scholars of code and uh, uh, codifiers of Jewish law. And in about the 14th, 13th uh, century, he, um, in uh, 1286, he was arrested and sentenced to prison by the German Caesar at the time. And the Jewish people wanted to release him from captivity and pay a lot of money to be able to get him out. And they were willing to take a lot of money to get him out. And he said, absolutely not. 
because if you do this, then the next one's going to take the next rabbi, and they'll want again, and it'll be a vicious cycle, and they'll always be taking rabbis and putting attacks on the Jewish people, and he didn't let them do it. For eight years, he sat in prison. He died eventually in prison. And even after his death, they didn't want to let his body out until a person, very wealthy individual, came along and said, that's it, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. And he paid them, and he got the body out, and his body was complete, and then they buried him. So the, but he did not allow, he said, do you not allow to? I'm not going to allow my body to be able to be released because I don't want that they should start a certain type of, uh, you know, cycle that they should do this. On the other hand, the Mishnah talks about because of financial reasons. In many cases, when it's financial reasons, it depends what the situation is. However, when we talk about in a terrorist act, what are we concerned about? Where a person's life is in danger, even then there are many different commentators and codifiers of Jewish law and says when the life is in danger, you can expend all the money to be able to get the person's life out. Well, then why have they done it? Well, so what, what's the reason for this is? Sorry. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya says, and where do we find this in the Talmud? That's if there's money, if they'll take a financial incentive. And we're going to get to that in a moment. One of the sources we find for this, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya was a great scholar of the Talmud, saw a child that was a captive in the bunch of the Roman captives. And he asked the child, he says, well, who, how did you end up here amongst the Roman captives? And the child, because he said a quote from a verse, and the child answered the other half of the verse. Rabbi Yeshua said, I know that this child is going to grow to greatness. And he said, I'm not leaving here until we get all the money in the world to get this money kid out of jail, to get him out of captivity. So we see at some times, as the commentary Tosfos, one of the great Spanish, it says, um, uh, French scholars and commentators on the Talmud explains and says in the case where we see that we could get them out and it's not a doubt if we'll get them out we should expend the money to get them out or when we see that the person's life is in absolute danger then we do have to get them out so what is it? when do we decide to pay more than that amount of money or not? but this is all talking about in normal cases where the people that you're dealing with are interested in money, interested in financial reasons, or whatever it may be. Unfortunately, the people that we're dealing with today are absolute terrorists, and they have one interest and one interest only, death for Jewish people. And as we see, if you, for example, were to say, I am willing to give you a thousand Jews to get out one, to, uh, to get out a captive, are you allowed to do that? Absolutely not. And if we look what happened, even look today, the mastermind of October 7th, this Yamach Shemoy Sinwar, he was already in Israeli prison. Once they saved his life, he had, they, he had, they took out his cancer a second time, that they let him out. And what did he do? Plotted and prodded against the Jewish people. Every single one of these terrorists that we let out of captivity is just another terrorist that wants to kill another Jew. And therefore, at all costs, we cannot allow to give away terrorists, even... In, even in small ones, because they become terrorists that are going to unfortunately kill Jewish people. And therefore, the only, and therefore the way to get rid of a fire is not by pouring more gasoline on it. And in our situation we're currently in, the only way to get them out is one thing, is Davin Tashem. Because there's no politician, there's no money, there's no tactic to be able to get them out, because only when we Davin Tashem are we going to be able to get them out. A fascinating thing happened. I remember this was in 28 Nissan, 1990. The Rebbe then said, suddenly came down Mincha. After Mincha, the Rebbe said a very short talk. 
And the Rebbe said the following words, I just received notice that the PLO is planning to do a terrible thing against Jews in the diaspora. What can we do? I call upon every person to say uh, five Psalms of Tehillim, then finish off with Psalm 190, and give tzedakah, and that's the way we'll fend off the enemy. And thank God, we know that nothing happened because of it, but there were plans for the PLO to do a terrible massacre in different places, and it was able to be foiled by the Israelis. What was the Rebbe telling us? The Rebbe was telling us that something, when there's a problem in the world, when there's a situation going on, it may be in Israel, it may be in Diaspora, it may be in Russia, there's one thing that we can do that works. And that is to say to Hillim, to do mitzvahs in their honor and in their merit. But there's a catch to it. What's the catch? It's very easy to get inspired. I take out a tillim, I say a tillim. Going, my day's going to be great. In the time of the second temple, they tried destroying the second temple. The wall wasn't going down. And they tried infiltrating into the city of Jerusalem. It wasn't working. But every single day, even while there was a siege, the Jewish people would lower down a basket of money and the Romans would send back up an animal for them to bring the carbon tumid, the, the, the sacrifice, the daily sacrifice. And as long as they were doing that, there was no siege on Jerusalem. The siege did not change the dynamic of the destruction of the Jerusalem. All of a sudden, one day, an old guy sees what's going on. He tells the Romans, you guys are stupid. You know why you can't destroy the Holy Temple? It's because they're bringing this, t- this a sacrifice consistently. Stop giving them the sacrifice. You'll see you'll be able to overcome it. The next day when they lowered the money, instead of putting in a goat or a sheep, they put in a pig. And that was began the destruction of the temple. What we see from here is something very fascinating. Doing a mitzvah, doing saying Tehillim, and doing all these things are wonderful things. But what's most important is to do it consistently. We take upon ourselves to do something consistently, and every single day, and make it part of who we are, that every single day we take some time to think about our brothers and sisters who are in captivity, to think about our brothers and sisters who are going through pain and suffering, or any person for that matter. But it's not just a one-time event. Okay, I did it, I'm finished, and did my duties. But to make it part of our daily routine, we then, we are guaranteed that this will break through the greatest levels of heaven, and we'll be able to see great miracles in the special month of Adar that we were merited to have the miracle of Purim. So too we will have many more miracles and a greater celebration even than Purim with the coming of Moshiach may be now. Amen.